0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think.
1: Okay, so we want to think about how the Holy Spirit is in the Trinity. How the Holy Spirit's in God, you could say. I mean the Holy Spirit is God, but we can think about how He's in the Trinity, and so how He is with respect to the Father and the Son. And then we'll think about how He's in us. Okay, so that's what we'll, we'll do that. And to deal with the, the first question, we'll appeal to a scriptural analogy for the Trinity, the analogy of the Word and Love. Something that really, if you if you could, should be taught in every catechism curriculum. I mean, maybe it's a little bit too, I don't know, would it be too difficult? You, you can tell me at the end whether you think so. But it's really, uh, when I first learned about it, I thought, well, why didn't anybody tell me earlier? But it is true. It's a little bit, it might be a bit, it, uh, yeah, it could be challenging for, for at certain levels. So, so our acts, but we'll, we'll see our acts of knowing and loving offer us the best analogy for understanding the Son and the Holy Spirit. So We'll go through that. And then the second question, how the Holy Spirit is in us, we reflect on the divine missions, the missions of being sent. That is the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit into the world, so and then into our souls invisibly. Jesus says repeatedly that he's sent by the Father, and that the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. So there's a sending, a mission. So as I said, this, this will lead us to some... Uh, maybe steep theological climb, but not, not a sheer bluff that you cannot scale. And, you know, students of Trinity University, I think, would especially be ready to try this, I hope. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, it's it, it will help us, I hope, move from more simplistic accounts to a more robust understand, understanding of the Trinity. And a, a little challenge from time to time is probably good, right? So it'll be a good exercise. So I'll stop at certain points along the way, just for questions of clarification. We can leave more open-ended questions to the end, but if you, if you don't even follow the terms I'm using, please ask because it doesn't make sense for me to keep on talking about if you're not following. Okay, so if you look at the outline, I'm starting at number two, the divine persons. Okay, the, number, the divine persons. So without the help of divine revelation, right, that is if we're just working from human reason alone, we can know God through his effects. Okay, so like what he does in the universe, things he makes, we can know about God, but this will not show us God in the distinction of persons. Why would you even think that there is a distinction of persons in God? You wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You could prove by reason alone that God exists. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas does that famously in his five ways. You could also show that he is perfect, he's omnipotent, he's perfect subsistent goodness, he's infinite and so forth. In fact, Aquinas does that in the Summa Theologiae. He proves God's existence and then he examines insofar as we can what what how God is in himself just by reason alone he's you know you could prove this but God's pure spirit and is invisible to us and created beings don't have the ontological depth right the depth of being to manifest God's personal distinction it's it's too creatures are too shallow to show how God is in his in his very being God's manner of existence is so far above and so dissimilar to ours Right. I mean, there is a similarity. So we are similar to him, but more more dissimilar. So we know only we know only know that God is a Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, because Christ has revealed that to us. Right. We only know that from Scripture. Now, one truth you must not lose track of when talking about the three persons is God's perfect unity, total and perfect, uncompromised unity. God has one intellect and one will. Okay, Christians must affirm this no less than Jews or Muslims. Right? There's no argument here. The assertion that God is a communion of three persons—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—doesn't affect God's perfect unity in the least at all. Right? It's not an either-or. If the idea of three persons make us lose track of the one God with one being, right? One divine essence, one life, one intellect, and one will, then we'll have lost the Christian teaching. So, that, so a non-Christian might not think that it's possible that the one God be a communion of three persons, okay, because that's revealed, but he should not think that Christians doubt that there's one God and that the one God is perfectly one, okay? That, that would be a misunderstanding. Now, keeping the three in one together mentally is a challenge for us because there's nothing like that in the created universe. Corporeal things are individuated by matter, right? That's Right. So different individuals can be of the same species, right? Two squirrels, the same kind of thing. They have the same essence, squirrel essence, but they're not the same squirrel because they have different matter. Right. So this one's here, this one's there, this one's older, this one's younger, this one's gray, this one's, you know, brown, whatever. They're individuated, as a philosopher, say, by matter. So in technical language, they have the same essence specifically, right? Same species, but not numerically. They're not one same thing. So it seems like, when we think about the Trinity, it seems like either the Father and the Son are not distinct in the real order, right? just only in thoughts, like you use different names for the same person who's really the same in the real order, or else they are distinct in the real order because they're not one same thing, one same God. So that, this, is the, this is the hard part, right? This is what challenges and, and explodes our imaginations. But the revelation that Christ has imparted to us affirms that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct in the real order. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. And yet they are one numerically same God. So not distinct. One is, has more perfection. Or there's, there's, They are one God, one intellect, one will, one life. This is not against reason. In fact, the very source of reason, God, has revealed himself to be a communion of three persons okay but it challenges us because there's we don't god's mode of, of being is, is so different we should be aware that our our perspective is limited to our experience right like a toddler might imagine that all toddlers have teddy bears you know and a globe because he has one right so to us mortals god's trinitarian manner of existence can seem so bizarre but god might say to us no i'm normal you you're the weirdos i mean you know i was here first and this is the way being actually is in its its richest possible form. Okay, any questions about that? Are you, are you everybody gonna go along with that? Okay, good. Okay, so how do we even know that there's a Father, a Son, and Holy Spirit? Jesus tells us this is so in the Gospels. So John 1628, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So you say, okay, so there's a Father and there's a Son. And they're not the same person, because there's a son who comes from the father, okay? In John 14, 26, we read, but the Holy Spirit whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Oh, okay, so there's a Holy Spirit who's not the father of the son. How about that? Now, how do we know that they're all one same God? This is not an easy question and the early church struggled to articulate this, but Thomas the apostle calls Jesus, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28, right? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In 16, 15, all that the Father has is mine. In 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, the Son does likewise. Also, Jesus forgives sins and raises people from the dead, which... Only God has the power to do. This was a, that's a typical argument of the, the ancient fathers. You know, if you could do divine deeds, you have a divine nature because your, your, your actions reveal your nature. The Holy Spirit, too, has the power to forgive sins. Right in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In Matthew 12, 31, also in Mark and Luke, Jesus teaches that every sin and blasphemy blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an infinite and unforgivable sin, then the Holy Spirit must be God, right? That's an argument we could bring. So if the three persons in the Trinity are co-equally God, and yet they are distinct in the real order, how can we know what their personalities are? What are they like? From scripture, of course, right? So, but this may not always be so straightforward because sometimes attributes are ascribed to distinct persons. The same attributes are ascribed to the distinct persons. For instance, I give you those quotations. John 1.14 reveals that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Okay, so the word, full of grace and truth. But in John 15.26, we hear that the spirit of truth so John says, but when the counselor comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, even the spirit of truth. You're like, Okay, so the words, grace and truth, spirit, okay, he has, he's truth also. And Hebrews 10, 29, we hear of the spirit of grace. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has outraged the spirit of grace? You're like, well, wait a minute. So they are, if they're, they're distinct, but they have one same life, so I, but, so... Who gets how do, how do we know how do we sort this out? Well we can turn to Aquinas for an analogy taken from scripture that he borrows from Augustine and strengthens so this is the analogy of the word in love so this is uh, Roman numeral 2a and this is what, what I, this is the analogy that really if you can graph some of this if we do nothing else but get a little bit of this we'll have, have done uh, we'll have done a great thing and when I first learned this analogy yeah I, had, I thought well why didn't anybody tell me until now? That's crazy. Because it's uniquely important for coming to some grasp of the Trinity. And it would be very hard to do that in a, in a rich way without it. At least that's what Aquinas thought. This analogy has been called the psychological analogy, not in the sense of modern psychology, but because it appeals to the soul, but right, psyche that's where psychology comes from, as an analogy, the soul, as an analogy for the Trinity. Okay, so scriptural passages... that give rise to this analogy, John 1 verses 1 through 3 and, and first letter of John 4 verses 7 to 8 and 12 to 13. So in John 1 we read, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And first letter of John reads, beloved let us love one another for love is of God and he who loves is born of God, and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his own spirit. Okay, so let me, I'll just, it's not the main point, but I'll give you Augustine's reasoning here, a couple of syllogisms, and then, and you can ask questions later if you don't follow. But so he reads this from first, the first letter. Love is of God. He reads that in view of God is love. To infer the truth that a divine person proceeds as love from the Father. That is, since God is love and love is of God, then God is of God, this is Augustine, and this God of God is himself love. This is not too crazy, right? So think of the Creed, Right? We say God from God, light from light. So, what Augustine's saying here is, oh, well, we also have God from God, love from love. That's, that's how he reads these two passages. You could also add Romans 5:5. 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Okay, so we see here the word being associated with the Son and love being associated with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be key because in God, there's no before or after, and so we say sons are produced by birth. You think of a before and after physical limitations, but if you think of a word proceeding in the intellect, it's, it's much freer from, from those limitations. So the son is the word, and the Holy Spirit is love. So we'll have to think about these two immaterial powers of the soul, the intellect and the will. Okay, so that's what I say. We'll do a little bit of work on this, and, and I hope it will just change your life. Well, Yeah, a little bit. Could, it could. Okay. So the intellect produces words, right? Concepts, ideas. And the will produces impulses of love. That's Aquinas' explanation. So first, regarding the intellect, we have to think about what a word is. In common usage, word refers to vocal, audible words, such as I'm producing right now. But underneath vocal words are concepts, right? Ideas we use vocal words as signs to point to realities, right? It's much easier to say the word dog than to carry around a dog with you all the time and point to it, right? Or you know, when you need, you need to carry around everything that you wanted to refer to. And even if you could, because the word is, is universal, so that's a, And even if you could do that, if you pointed to it, people wouldn't know if you were talking about this particular dog or, or all dogs, right? Whereas when you use the word, the word is just, it's, it's universal and you can specify it with with grammar. So it's much, it's much more convenient, much more powerful and clarifying to, to use words as signs. Right. So in the analogy of the word and love, word means the concept that you produce in your intellect. The key here is that the concept is a likeness of the thing known. Right. It's a sign of that thing. So how does that work? How do we produce the concept? Well, in the act of knowing, we can distinguish four things. The thing known. So you have to have that the act of knowing, you need an intellect that's going to be acting. Then two things, the intelligible form that's abstracted by the intellect. I'll elucidate that a little bit later, but your your intellect, you can abstract this intelligible form. You could say this shape, intellectual shape. And fourthly, the concept. That's the, the shape. It's expressed in your intellect. So let me give you an analogy. In corporeal seeing, a likeness of the thing is in the eye, right? Namely, a representation of the thing made of light, right? So like if you were looking at something, a doc, an eye doctor could see, right? it it's upside down, it's really small, but it, in, in, in the, your eye, they actually the thing could be, you could see, you could see it, right? This is the, um, the Guadalupe miracle, right? If you, they've used a microscope and they looked at our lady's eye and she's looking and, she, and you can see, I mean, amazingly, it's the right proportion, it's teeny tiny, it's upside down and it's Juan Diego, there's the bishop and there's some Spanish nobleman and, and, and like some servant, so amazing. But so, so that's it. So there's in the eye, there's the thing seen, but made of light. The thing itself is not in your eye. Like if you're looking at a stone, you see a stone made of light. If the stone itself were in your eye, you would see nothing, right? You'd go to the ER and say, please get the stone out of my eye. But so the thing is translated into the order of light because light's reflecting off it. It's a stone, you could say, made of light. Okay. In intellectual vision... A likeness of the thing is in the intellect, a representation, made of idea. This is my language, not Aquinas, so if you think it's goofy, blame it on me, not him. But so let's say in the intellect you have this concept, this representation, this idea. So it's the thing, but made of idea. The thing itself is not in your intellect, like a stone, which is impossible because your intellect is immaterial, so you can't have a, a corporeal stone in something immaterial. The thing is translated into the order of knowledge. So it's a stone made of knowledge. Now, we know the thing, not just the concept, where right? the concept is that through which we know, like a window. You look out the window to see something else, right? You don't look at the window, but through, through it to the thing outside. I mean, you could, by secondary reflect, you could look at a window, right? You want to clean the window. And that would be like engaging in epistemology, right? you could think of what are concepts? Okay, and be, you know, this is what philosophers do. But but that's a secondary action. Normally, you just just use concepts to know things, right? So you're not locked in your mind. This is a problem of modern philosophy. Whether there are things out there, who knows? You're actually knowing your concept. No, you produce concepts and you know know things through them. Okay, so human beings live in two orders, material and immaterial. We are created to know material things, but in the immaterial order. That's our, it's a a great power we have. And in fact, it's power in the image of God. So we know material things, but we we translate them into the immaterial order. So we see triangles made out of plastic, and we produce an idea of a triangle that's immaterial and indestructible, right? Even if you destroyed all the triangles in the universe, right? Which would take a long time. But you could still think of a triangle once you had the idea of it, even if there are none in, in the room or in the world. Concepts, Come through material beings, but concepts themselves, being immaterial, are incorruptible, right? They never, they, they don't fade or get, well, if your memory, your brain can, that's true, you, you can forget, but the concept itself, right? It doesn't like get old or bent up or you know. Okay. So borrowing Aristotle's account, Aquinas explains that we first come into contact with an object in the world through our five senses. Right? Our knowledge comes through the senses. So we're not created with infused knowledge. Um, Plato thought that the senses weren't good enough. They're, material things aren't good enough to give you knowledge. Knowledge is too high. So, so how, how could he explain knowledge? Well, you must have had it from another life, and all the senses do is, is remind you of it. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was queen of England, I was, I, I, you know. So, so you, so you, but, that, but, but Aristotle has a, a much more robust account. No, we actually can raise translate material, sensible images into ideal, immaterial reality. So you don't have to get it innately. It comes through the senses. But okay, so we encounter things through our five senses from that combined data. This is Aristotle and Aquinas. The imagination produces an image, phantasm, a distilled image. And I, in modern science, right, I think of it as like a neuron, because, you know, if the brain doctor, like, he t- touches people in the brain, and they, they, like, hear music, or what is he doing? He's, I think he's, he's bringing these phantasms in, in, he's activating them. Okay, but so then we have this this image, our agent intellect, agent, active intellect, there, could, we have only one intellect, but you could distinguish, as Aristotle does, act and potency, so there's there's one that's active and one that's receptive. So the agent intellect, which is like a light, shines on this image produced by the senses, translating it into the immaterial order as a likeness or an intelligible form of the thing-sense. So the, the active aspect of the intellect is like a light. It's just shining and constantly on all these sense images and just popping out these, translating them into the ideal order. And we do this just immediately, so, so easily, but it's, it's amazing. So... We were producing these uh, intelligible forms and then those are expressed in the, you could say, the receptor or the possible intellect, as Aquinas' term, as a concept or idea. To visualize it, you could think of a light shining on a stained glass window projecting an image onto the wall behind it. So the, the agent intellect is like a light shines and the, the possible intellect is, is uh, like the wall that just re- rece- is where the... the, the idea is expressed. Okay, yeah, so we only have one intellect, but we, we, we analyze it in terms of act and potency. So, the external object understood resides in the intellect as a likeness. So everything that you know, you have in your intellect a likeness of it. The concepts that the intellect produces are likenesses of the thing known. Now, why did I go through all this? How does this apply to the analogy of the word and love in the Trinity? Well, the word spoken of in John's gospel is the Father's concept of himself. That's why I worked on that, because this is, it's, it's brilliant. That is, in knowing himself, God is the Father, is the divine essence. In knowing himself, the divine essence, in, infinity, right? infinite, per, perfect, pure act, being. In knowing himself, God the Father produces a word or concept of himself, right? The way we produce likenesses, we got that from God the Father, right? God the Father does that these concepts, which are like you know a likeness of the thing known, so in this case, a likeness of the divine essence, the thing known, this is the word, this is the son, so this is who the son is. the father's act of knowledge is so rich and definitive and productive that the concept produced in the intellect is a whole other living existing self, who is the divine essence, right what God does, you know not surprisingly, is so it's yeah real so productive so rich so it's it's his concept is not just our our concept is is just you know has has a very thin being you could say right it's 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 just it's it's not a, it's not a substance but the father in knowing himself produces a whole other in the divine essence the concept is a likeness of the thing known in this case the likeness is so like the original that it is everything that the original is, except for being the original itself. The son is everything that the father is, except for being father. Because it's, that's how like the son is to the father. Aquinas says, amazingly, he says, the son is everything the father is, except for himself. And he says that the, the, the father's not more like himself than he is to the son. That sounds crazy, but the son is the perfect likeness. The son is such a perfect likeness that he is the divine essence, no less than the father. This is very helpful because, you know, keeping the one and three together is so difficult, but now we actually were getting some intellectual purchase on this, some way to think about how this could be. So the son is not a mere mere likeness of the uh, the divine essence. He is the divine essence, no less than the father. He can't be another divine essence. There can only be one. And anything that is not simply... The divine essence is not God, okay. So that's that's tells us something about the sun. We might even appeal to our own experience in trying to lay hold of this mystery, right? It's very satisfying when you can express yourself fully, right, and powerfully. You know when you can pour yourself out in words, right? You're just some significant event. Oftentimes, right, when you're, you know, either very angry or 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 maybe very happy, right? You you, and also when you could communicate yourself and people understand you, right? you like, that's who I am. And people are like, oh, I, I got it. I got it. And by contrast, it's very frustrating. What you, you can't find the words you, or you say it and people don't get it. You're like, oh, this is it's very frustrating, right? We experience this in our own language, but foreign languages all the more, right? You, you, can't, you can't find what you want to say. So, you know, we try to express ourselves in so many words that evaporate into the air and die quickly. I mean, when you go home tonight, are you going to remember anything I said? Maybe, maybe you won't. No, you're going to remember everything. But no, our, our words, they, right? they, 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 they die. But by contrast, the Father speaks one word. The Father only speaks one word. He has one thing to say, but it's, he says everything. From all eternity, the Father has one word. He speaks, and that word is such a full, powerful, and definitive self-expression. It's a whole other within God, a whole other person, another, another self, another who says I. The only distinction between the two is that the Father speaks, this word, and the word is spoken. So the Father, yeah, speaks, the word is spoken. The Son is so similar to the Father that he is not a second copy as another God, but he is another within the original. And we could turn to Scripture here. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the reflection of God's glory and the exact likeness of God's being. And that's not just poetic. Exact likeness. He is the divine essence, no less than the Father. All right, ask a question about that. Everybody, that's totally obvious and straightforward. Good enough, or or you can think of, okay, we can keep thinking about it. Okay, so how about the Holy Spirit then? That's who we wanted to, to, to talk about, especially this evening. We just noted that in the act of knowing, the intellect produces a likeness of the thing known, through which that thing is known right? So that is the known is in the knower. How? Through a likeness. That's how, how is the known, if you're, if you're looking at a dog, you know a dog, how is, how is it in you? By the, uh, the idea of a dog in your intellect, a likeness of the dog in your intellect. But how is the beloved in the lover? Through a likeness? No. The will doesn't produce a likeness of the object willed. The will, says Aquinas, produces an inclination toward the thing the thing that, that will and, and isn't that our ex- experience right if you love something you, you have an inclination you're driven toward the thing you love right you have an inclination toward it you could also describe the will as producing an impulse that's what that's the the you say the technical word especially aquinas uses for trinitarian theology an impulse toward the beloved that's that's what's, so you have the thing known is in the knower through likeness and the beloved is in the lover through this this impulse, it drives you. And I mean, that's so, right, I mean, if you really want something, if you really love something, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll go to it, right, so, okay. The love of the Father and the Son for themselves and each other is, again, so rich, definitive, and productive that the impulse produced in the divine will is a whole other living, existing self who is the divine essence. The impulse, this divine inclination, this impulse, this inclination is so full of the beloved that it is everything that the lover is except for being the lover himself. Right? So I'm doing exactly what I did, what Aquinas does, for the word. Right? The, the, the knowledge is so rich and productive, it's everything that the knower is, except for knower, it's because, but it's because the perfect likeness. Here, the lover is, the beloved is everything the lover is, except for the lover. He's the the, the love is so. Yeah, what is real, so profound, rich, explosive? It, it, It produces another in God. The Holy Spirit is such a profound impulse of the Father and the Son that he is the divine essence, no less than the Father and the Son are. The Holy Spirit can be thought of as the mutual love of the Father and the Son because he proceeds from them as uniting them in love. He is their infinite mutual inclination for each other in person. That's what he is. His person. What is his personality? To be the impulse of love and the divine will. To be the love of the Father for themselves and each other. So this analogy illustrates the language of scripture. What proceeds as a word in the intellect is a concept, an intellectual conception. And sons are conceived, right? Aren't they? Spirits aren't. So that language works. Yeah, we conceive so that we, the son, the word is the son. I mean, that, that Those go together. Words are conceived. Sons are conceived. So the Son, but not the Spirit, is the eternal word conceived in the Father's intellect. And again, from John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So the Father begets the Son. And what proceeds as an impulse in the divine will is a driving inclination, an inclination that drives one strongly toward the Beloved. And here, if we want to look for some scripture, Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a strong driving wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the spirit here is like a fire and a driving force. Yeah. The Father and the Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit. They spirate him, to use Aquinas' language. So, and one is impelled by love to perform an action. Right? We do say people are inspired to do great deeds. Right? Love gives rise to aspirations. So that language also works in English. So this analogy elucidates scripture powerfully. Okay. We can also note that love has an ecstatic character. There's like a, a oh, did you have a question? No, okay. <laughs> so um, there's like a, a, a circularity. Knowledge is in the known, but is, knowledge is the known in us as a likeness. So, so it's in, in us. So that we have something outside. We, we translate it, bring it into our own mode. So it's, it's in us as a likeness. Love, by contrast, is our being drawn out of ourselves, toward the thing loved. So there's this, in knowing, you, you, you bring it in and produce a likeness, and then you have a volitional response to it. It you, you, you points you back out, out, orders you to the real order. So the ideal order and the real order. So here with the, the, the will, here there's not a likeness, but an impulse or an inclination toward the beloved. So the son's personality is to be a word of knowledge, the conceived truth, the fruit of the intellect. He's the perfect likeness to the Father. And for that reason, he bears the name image, right? So Colossians, in Colossians, we read Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So whenever you think of the Son, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, who is he in his divinity? What is he? He is the Word. He is the Father's perfect likeness, totally equal to the Father, but proceeding according to by, no, by way of knowledge, and he's the perfect likeness, the father's own conception of himself. And so that's the son, and the Holy, it is the Holy Spirit's personality to be an impulse of love, a fire or affection, breathed forth as the fruit of the will, driving one toward the beloved. Okay, as we heard in the account from Acts and from the Feast of Pentecost, or you could add John 3, 8, the spirit blows where he will. So there's this breathing, there's this driving fire that's how the, the beloved is in the lover. Okay, so when you think of the Holy Spirit, that's what you can think of. This impulse in the divine will. This analogy also shows the order of processions. We cannot love what we do not know. Or it wouldn't be love if it's, it's like you don't even know what it is or that it's there. Love proceeds from knowledge. And so we gain some insight into the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Right? The Son doesn't proceed from the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Son. So, yeah, that works. There's, there's, uh, it shows the, the intelligibility of the life of God, which is only revealed. And our, these are weak analogies, but it gives us something, some grasp of it. <clears throat> and how about the Father's personality? Well, he's the one from whom the Son and the Holy Spirit proceed and to whom we're led back. But he's more hidden in a certain way, as, as we'll see when we talk about the missions which we'll, we'll do now. Any questions about that? You want to ask about the processions of the divine persons? You're going, you going to take my word for it? <laughs> okay. Let's think about the missions. So, what time is it by the way? Oops, wrong button. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, Jesus asserts numerous times that the Father sent him into the world. So John 6:44. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit into the world, as we read, for instance, in John 15, 26. But when the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. Okay, now notice nowhere is it written that the Father is sent. He's without origin, so he's not sent. He proceeds from no one. And you could say, in a way, there's there's no one to send him. Okay, so how are the Son and the Spirit sent? Well, visibly and invisibly. The Son is sent visibly in the incarnation. So Jesus is the visible mission of the Son. Right? He's the Son come into the world. He could be seen. He interacted with, with people in the world at a specific time so visibly. The Holy Spirit has four visible missions by the reckoning of the fathers of the church. So the tongues of fire at Pentecost. Christ's breathing on the apostles when he said, Receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. The dove at the baptism of Christ. And the cloud at the Transfiguration, although actually only a few fathers include the cloud, um, but Aquinas counts it, and, and he takes it from John Damascene. So, now these manifestations of, of the Holy Spirit are not united to the the, the, spirit, the person of the spirit, as the human nature is united to Christ personally, right? So, so there's that distinction. The, the Holy Spirit's manifestations are only signs representing him. Okay, you, you're representing him uniquely, but they're not personally united. Again, nowhere is the Father represented by any visible sign. We only hear His voice from the cloud at the Christ's baptism and transfiguration, right? And when He said in John twelve twenty eight, "Father, glorify Thy name," Christ said that, and a voice came from heaven, "I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." So the Father might be said to remain more hidden in the created universe than the Son and the Spirit. Okay. Those are the visible missions, but the Son and the Holy Spirit are sent invisibly in grace. And this is is how, how we'll see the Holy Spirit is in us. In baptism, one has his sins forgiven, and the soul is filled with sanctifying grace. The whole Trinity dwells in the mind by sanctifying grace. That's what you have at baptism. Aquinas teaches that grace conforms the soul to God. Okay? In the missions, the soul is likened to the person sent and indwelling. You, you, are, you are made like them. Therefore, the soul is assimilated to the Son by the gift of wisdom and to the Holy Spirit by the gift of charity. Right, why? Well, the Son proceeds how he, he's the word and wisdom of the Father. So the mission of the Son is by way of wisdom, right? By way of knowledge. And the Holy Spirit proceeds as love of the Father and the Son, So the mission of the Holy Spirit is by way of love, by way of charity. In a beautiful line, Aquinas asserts that the Son is not just any word, but one that breathes forth love. Okay, so in these missions, right, they come, the the persons come to dwell in us, and the gifts uh, make us like them. We receive gifts that resemble them and make us like them. They they, um, elevate our intellects and wills. And so we have a word, well, that's who the sun is, right? And so that, in that way we resemble the sun, and we have this impulse in our wills, so we resemble the spirit. Right. Because of this indwelling, it is possible for us to, in a certain way, experience the proper relations of the divine persons, since the gifts of grace refer us to the divine persons in their distinctiveness okay? Wisdom gives us a share in the way that the son is related to the father, right? Because he proceeds as the word from the father. And charity gives us a share in the way that the Holy Spirit is related to the father and the son, because he proceeds; he's the love of the father and the son. He's this divine impulse. Aquinas elaborates on this in the sentences commentary. I give you that quotation, distinction 15, question four. He says, this procession of a divine person, leading rational creatures back to God, is called a mission insofar as the proper relation of the divine person himself is represented in the soul through a received likeness. Right? So there's that likeness again. A received likeness that is patterned on and originated from the property itself of the eternal relation. The son's very personality, the spirit's very personality from all eternity. There, there, you get a pattern of, you, you receive a gift, that, a likeness that's patterned on, The very distinct personality of the person. Okay. And because according to the reception of these two, a likeness to the properties of the persons is effected in us. Therefore, according to a new mode of being, as a thing is in its likeness, the divine persons are said to be in us insofar as we are assimilated to them by this new mode. The Son and the Holy Spirit are in us insofar as we are assimilated to them through our sharing in their personal properties. Okay? Our affiliation with respect to the Father is mediated and accomplished by likenesses of, in us of the Son's and the Holy Spirit's proper relations to the Father. This is how we're led back to the Father. We're referred back to the Father as our ultimate end by sharing in the proper relations that the Son and the Spirit have to the Father. So they, they lead us back and join us to, to that end, to the Father. Okay? So there's an image of the Trinity in us when we love ourselves. So, that's, that's a parallel to what God does, right? So, the Trinity is to be understood as God knowing and loving Himself. And amazingly, we're made in God's image. We, you know, compared to a carrot, right? We can know and love. A carrot can't know and love. It's alive, it reproduces itself and, and nourishes itself. But we can know and love. So, so in, that, in that sense, there's a parallel. But there's even a higher conformity when we don't love ourselves, but when we love God in grace, right? That's less parallel but it's, it's a higher conformity to what God does because then we're miniature images of the Trinity because then we have, and we are, you know, God, the Trinity is God knowing and loving himself. And if we are elevated so that we are knowing and loving God, we're doing, on a human level, of course, the same activity as God is doing. Only grace can make this possible. And grace marks marks our intellects and wills to make us like the Son and the Holy Spirit. By nature, our intellects and wills are proportioned to know and love material things, dogs and chairs and, you know, human beings. Through grace, God elevates our intellects and wills so that they can possess God as their object, right? Notice that God doesn't add a new and different power, brand new. He, He elevates the powers that we already have, right? The powers that make us in his image. So we see here we're capable of having grace in, in, in fact adam and eve were created in grace so this points to our dignity we're we're ready we're ready for this we're, we're god being made in god's image means we were we're just re- ready to be elevated so this is is a divinization right being made like god grace makes us like the trinity how by having god come to dwell in us as in his temple we are made temples of the holy spirit but how can God be in us, right? I mean, you can't like physically hug God. Well, actually, think of in the Eucharist, God comes into us through the in- instrument of the sacrament. Amazingly, God became man. This man changes bread and wine into his body and blood, soul and divinity. And so when we consume the Eucharist, we transform the, the host into our bodies and we are spiritually transformed into Christ. Insofar as we're open to this transformation, right? Because in, when you eat something on one, in one direction, you, you change it into yourself. But in the other way, you become what you eat, right? So that's why if you you need iron, you eat iron because you become, right? So there are two directions going there. So spiritually, we become like Christ through the Eucharist. So, okay, right. But spiritually, we're transformed by the Eucharist through grace, right? This all has to happen on the spiritual level. So in grace, then, how does God come to dwell in us? Through our intellects and wills, right, as we've been discussing. In grace, God is in us as the known and the knower and the beloved, and the lover. And there's a personal order to this divinization. The Holy Spirit leads us to the Son and makes his words intelligible to us, and the Son leads us to the Father whose perfect image he is. Remember what he said to Philip when Philip's like, you know, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. And, and, the, and Jesus is like, oh, Philip, come on. I mean, How Have I been with you so long and you you still don't know me? How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You could say, poor Philip, you're like, oh yeah, well, I was about to ask the same question. I'm glad you gave me to it, you know. But the the Son is the perfect image and the Spirit leads us to the Son who reveals the Father to us. But there's no created gift that conforms us to the Father. The Father is known and experienced as the one who is without origin, doesn't receive anything from anybody, and the one to whom we're ultimately led back. So you could say that the Father polarizes the whole created order as its beginning and its end, right, exerts a directional tension on it. Okay, so that we can just answer our question after having done all this hard work or easy work. Maybe it it wasn't hard. I probably shouldn't have suggested that then. um, Okay, so the Holy Spirit is in us through the gift of charity. And he makes us like him through this gift of charity, right, through this theological virtue in the will. So so we're elevated and we're made like him that way. Through charity, we're able to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Charity, says Aquinas, is the friendship of man for God. Aquinas explains, borrowing from Aristotle, that love is willing good to another. That's what it means to love. And friendship is not just willing good to another. It requires mutual love. So it's a special love. So to answer our question then, in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is love in person. So self-subsisting love, not something with love in it or just the ability to love, as for us, for instance, but the very essence and definition of love that is the source of all loves in the created order. he, He is love in person. You know, God is love. The divine essence is love, but that's, that's right. But the Holy Spirit also proceeds as love. The, the Father doesn't proceed at all. The Son proceeds, but not by way of love. So the Holy Spirit is love in person. That's who, that's who the Holy Spirit is in the Trinity. And in us, the Holy Spirit is the love of charity. That is, he is the mark and disposition of friendship between man and God. Any question about anything? You know, baseball? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> can't answer a lot about baseball. Please. have Please. One of the citations, is like first sentence. What is that? First sentence. Okay, sure. So uh, that's the sentences commentary. Uh, Peter, Peter Lombard was in the 1100s, I'm going to say. And he uh, wrote, he might have been the first one to try to write a comprehensive theological uh, account. So he took the father's opinions and try to document them and then give his own resolution in four books. So, and in Aquinas' time, you had to, your studies as a bachelor would be to, to stu- comment on the sentences. You had to read the sentences and, and write a commentary on them. That's how you got your bachelor's degree. These days we we do it a little differently, but it, go, it goes, you know, it's the same idea. You have to show, you know, yeah, you have to show your competence. So that's the first book, his commentary on the first book of the sentences of Peter Lombard. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's translated into English, by the way. So if you if you have any inclination to read it, it's it's it'd be, it's fun to look at a few pages, and then you could compare it with Aquinas's commentary on it. But so also Bonaventure wrote a commentary on on the uh, sentences. sentences. Uh, Albert the Great wrote a commentary. They all that was everybody did in the first step in university. Uh, you 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 had to do that. So yeah, so that's an early work of, of Aquinas, and in some time he changed if he changed his opinion. You, could, you have to be careful, because. so you want to look at the Summa Theologiae, because that's his mature opinion. He didn't change a lot on, on, on many things, but there are some things he um, moved on. And uh, so the sentences commentary could be dangerous for that reason. You're like, what, Aquinas says this? And he well, when he was a bachelor. But what do you think? Please. I'm just thinking, um, when it comes to the reality of God being in us through grace, um, could you comment on what that might mean when we approach Prayer, just like how that um, affects um, the way that we approach God uh, in prayer and express things to make, if you bring that reality into uh, the practicals of express relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so prayer is raising our heart and mind to God. So along with these, these when you in baptism, so the intellect and will are elevated so we can love God above all things we can, and, and know him. As the object of our knowledge and love, we also get all the virtue infused virtues um, but if we have contrary habits contrary to bad habits or just right right they can impede the the showing of the the, the exercise of those virtues but otherwise it would be praying would just be prompt easy and joyful it would it which but sometimes we right sometimes it is but sometimes it's not so but it um, uh yeah so what is this what is the presence of God in us? how does it help us so the faith so the the the, the gift of 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 wisdom here so faith is a share in god's own knowledge so we receive revelation we're given we in faith we you you believe it you 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 have this act of faith so you're able to cling to you, you when you believe it then you can pray then you then you pray you, as as a believer right so you know this person and then and you have hope and you have charity so you hope this this you, you know this person has the power Three persons have the power to save you, and, and you hope for it, and and then you love this person, and that that changes the conversation a lot. When you know this person and you love this person, now you can when now you can have a conversation. Uh, I was just thinking of an example of of faith. Um, the only one of the I don't know if it's the only well, maybe it might be another one where where uh, a case where I was I was the principal celebrant, and I've been late for mass. I, th- I can think of maybe only twice in my whole life. One of them was a wedding, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, the, the traffic is was in in Washington, is, is can be crazy, and you know from Friday to Saturday you think be better on Saturday. So I, I went to the rehearsal Friday, and I you know I know how much time. My 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 sister when she got married, her her some of her relatives from Nebraska didn't make it. Because they, you know, I mean, they're in eastern Nebraska. I mean, you're driving 15 miles. I mean, how, how long does that take? Well, in Washington, I mean, that could take an hour or two. Okay, but so, I, but I'm from the area. But oh, the beltway was just practically shut down. And this is st- people had cell phones, but but I, I didn't. I was you know they weren't that uh, all well, widespread. And as a, as a Dominican, we, so I couldn't call and say you know I'm, I'm coming. But so I, I was just I was I was thinking of um, Bishop Stafford uh, mentioned once he was, you know, had a wedding, he gets it, he, he's driving there, and he looks at the invitation, and it's, you know, 9.30, he's like, I thought the mass was 10.30, and so he's driving, he's saying this, 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 this you know, uh, Teresa, St. Teresa's prayer, you know, let nothing affright thee, nothing uh, upset thee, all things are passing, you know, God alone, and he's saying this over and over, when he gets there, the bride has locked herself in the bathroom, and the, and the family's like, you know, if they had had weapons, he would have been, so, uh, but, so I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, this is what I'm thinking, here it comes, when I get there, that's what's going to, and but when I got there, the bride was calm and she said, I, I knew you would come. And I was like, I was like, marry that woman. Are you kidding? This is... <laughs> so so when you when you have but just faith changes the relationship. So so God reveals himself and, and you believe and you believe and you love God. So then so so raising your heart and mind. This is so this is your you're in a conversation. You're raising your heart and mind to God. That that's that makes that possible. And that that changes the conversation. And that, that's why it's so um, encouraging to read the lives of the saints because for what they're, you know, they're, they show what's possible and what they're able to do. And also when you see their struggles, you know, John Vianney seeing an old man in, in church and, and he himself is struggling. John Vianney struggled in prayer, but yeah. And he said, you know, what do you, what do you how do you, how do you do it? You know, I just, I don't know what, and, and the man said, you know, I look at him and he looks at me. Like, that's it. Okay, well, I'll try, you know, so. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's um, uh, yeah. With the gifts, you, you you just you you can have great consolation. But but I mean, there also the Lord allows you to grow through through desolation. I mean, I mean the saints also had you know dark nights of the soul and things like that, or just feeling you know Mother Teresa getting so many consolations, and then when he stopped, she just felt like a jilted lover. You know, she just so uh, all that to say, uh, yeah. So so it makes it possible to know and love God. It makes it possible to raise our hearts and minds to God. It makes us want to do that. and makes it joyful to do that. But also we, we can understand that uh, that can at times can be a struggle, even if you, even though you're sometimes because of our own sins, but sometimes not because of our sins, but just because um, the Lord is not giving us consolations that we're, that we're accustomed to. That's the advantage of not having them to begin with, like me, you know, you're just like, you don't miss it. No. <laughs> so. There's no good so give another round of okay. Great.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org/donate.